Today we are going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, government and taxes. We love it. It's wonderful. Praise the Lord. I hope you're picking up on the sarcasm that I'm laying down. Well, let's jump into Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authority. How many of them? All of them, right? For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. It's in the Bible. We're stuck. <sighs> for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Yeah, taxes, they're in the Bible. It's terrible. We're, I mean, we, we, there's no way around it. You know, what's funny is when you look at this in Romans chapter 13, this is Paul writing, and he's, he's laying out a precedence here. Is where do the governing authorities come from? Where do they get their power? What authority do they have? It ultimately comes from God. That means even when they're bonehead leaders doing terrible things, they were put there by God, as hard as that is to believe. But God often uses the leaders of a nation to bring judgment upon that nation or judgment upon another nation. You see it all throughout Scripture. So many times that that is the case. Now, when the gay marriage agenda came out and they passed it, there were many that were saying that we have to go along with it because of what Romans 13 says. We just go along with it. We get on board with it. That's what it says. That's not what it says. This did not say that you have to do everything that it says. It is the governing authority, but to do what? Good works. Who decides what is good? God. So man doesn't get to decide it, nor does government. That's what we're talking about. And when we get into this today, we're going to talk about the idea of where government comes from, what it is, and ultimately, my favorite phrase, my favorite catchphrase in all the land, the separation of church and state. What it is, what it is not, what you've heard is not true. And so before we do that, let's jump into Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to get going into this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You know, there's something these two houses have in common, is that the storm came. The only difference is what they were built upon. And it's talking about here is ultimately built upon the teachings of Christ, the Word, all of that. The foundation that we as Christians put our faith in is that everything goes back to Scripture. If it's not in Scripture, then we should not be doing it. Not the fact that, you know, I mean, cars and potato chips aren't in Scripture either. It doesn't mean we can't eat them or drive them. Um, eat the chips, drive the cars, just in case you were confused. But... But ultimately, it's this idea of where we get these things, this concept, the idea of good. Where does good come from? Where do we get these ideas? Ultimately, it comes from God. 
The fall comes when we're not built on a firm foundation. Where we are today as a nation is on a very shaky foundation. At one point it was strong. It was built upon godly principles by godly men. It was founded on a very firm foundation. But since then, as government has gotten bigger and bigger and more pronounced, then it's begun to crumble that foundation and break it away. And the foundation that we once lived on and lived by is no longer the case. There are a lot of changes, and I'm going to show you some of that today, and I'm going to show you the things that happened throughout the history of this nation that begin to get us to where we are today. Because we didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, let's just change everything. It was gradual. You know, it kind of goes back to the old saying that, that if you throw a frog in boiling water, he'll jump out, but put him in cold water, turn the fire on, he'll sit there and get cooked. That's what we're doing. We've gotten cooked. And like our president, hate our president, doesn't matter. He's our leader. Therefore, he is an authority. He's somebody we should pray for. And I will say the one thing that bothers me a, a lot about the Christian movement is that with President Obama, they were like, get the guy out of office, everything. Hey, and even with Trump, even with some of the dumb things that he's done, they're just singing his praises. I'm like, that's a double standard. We should have been praying for him just like we are President Trump. But be that as it may, we're going to look at the beginning, the beginning of the country and how the foundation began. It started with one man, George Washington. Now, not just one man, obviously, but he was the first president. He was a great leader. He was an officer for the British, and they claim that these men, these founding fathers, were not Christian, but they were deists. Now, if you don't know what that means, it simply means that, yes, there is a God, but he does not meddle in the affairs of men. He's not active in our lives. He's just kind of there. He's a greater power, but man does what he wants to do. So he was an officer for the British. He was during the French and Indian War uh, at the store that I'm telling you. And what would happen is they would bring these troops through these wooded areas. Now, these guys from Europe, uh, they fought different than this because they're going to get ambushed here. Now, over in England, when they go to war, and you've seen the movies, right? Think of uh, the Patriot and all this other stuff. What do they do? They march out there shoulder to shoulder. They line up. It's ready, aim, fire. They shoot. Then they fall back in the row, and the next row steps up. They're taking turns shooting at each other. Did you guys catch that? They're standing there, taking like they shoot, then the other side shoots, and it's the last man standing wins. I mean, that is not a game that I want to play. I'm the one that's hiding behind the big guy, and it's going to take a very big guy for me to hide behind him. But I'm like, this makes no sense. But here, the French and the Indians, when they're grouped, they were coming together, they've got wooded warfare. So they're coming from all sides. Well, the British didn't know what to do with this. They come from every side. They don't know where to look. Where's all the gunfire? They're usually standing right in front of us. This is the stupidest thing. I don't know who came up with that idea. Stupidest thing ever. But anyway, so when these come, they're getting ambushed. They're coming from all around. They're getting bullets flying from all directions. They stand there, ready, aim, fire pretty much be dead at that point. So they're standing. Now, there were 1,300 troops in this battle. 714 of them get killed. That's like two-thirds. That's a lot. Yeah. 30 on the uh, French and Indian side got killed. 30, 714. Big difference. 86 officers were killed, or 86 officers total. 26 were killed. 36 of them wounded. That means most of them. Okay? Now, George Washington was the only mounted officer to survive, the only one. He was up on horseback, and he was the most vulnerable because he wasn't in the back. He was up at the front of the troops, giving them orders, ready, aim, fire. He's the guy on the horse with the sword. He had two horses shot out from underneath of him and killed. Underneath of him, he gets up, jumps on another horse. I'm sure there was just a line of horses like, oh, please, pick me next. 
When this is all over, this is all done, he gets back, he goes back to his tent, he takes off his coat. There are four bullet holes in this coat. These are his writings that this is going on. And when he gets all done, he writes a letter thanking God for his protection. Because rightfully, he should not have been there. He should have been killed. Every other mounted officer was killed but George Washington. That's no coincidence. So as is typical, he thanks God for his protection. And 15 years later, okay, war's over, nation's founded, he's president. One of the Indian chiefs comes to see him. And he told him to shoot the officers because if they were gone, the troops would surrender. That's how it worked. Now, you didn't typically do that because they had these rules of engagement that they operated over there. But they didn't care. You know, my dad taught me when I was growing up. It's like, if you're ever in a fight, win. Don't fight fair. Bite, scratch, claw. Do whatever you got to do, right? Pride is not at the issue. Don't get your tail whipped. I didn't get into a lot of fights. I usually could talk my way out of them. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> but anyway, so this Indian chief comes up here and he, he's speaking to George Washington. This is what he says. He said, I am a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. And I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior. I have... Um, Travel to see the young warrior of this great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. I called to my young men and said, Mark yon tail, or tall and daring warrior. He is not of the red coat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom and his warriors fight as we do. Himself is alone exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain and he will die. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for him knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain, a power mightier than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. Seeing you were under the special guardship of this great spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I am old and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But ere I go, there is something that bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen, the great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. Did you hear that in your history books? I sure didn't. And this is documented fact that he went there and said, this is the man that could not be killed. It goes on and talks about how they had over 15 shots at him at different times, right at him. And these were good marksmen. These were not just, this is not me out there shooting, okay? <laughs> like, Stan and I have an argument of who's going to be the best of the worst every year. We go out to the skeet show. If we threw a handful of rocks, we have a better chance of hitting those things than shooting at them. But I use 12-gauge, Stan uses 20-gauge. That's an inside joke. We're not going there, Stan. He's turning red. Okay. But the bottom line is this, is that they had the chance to shoot him, and they shot at him. It wasn't lack of effort, but nothing they did could hit him. God was protecting him, and then he goes up. He's like, I have to see this. The great spirit protects this man. He will become the chief of nation. The people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. There has never been a more powerful nation than the nation of, of America. Never. And here it is laid out. Now, Calvin Coolidge once said about Washington, he says, Washington was the directing spirit without which there would have been no independence, no union, no constitution, and no republic. We cannot yet est estimate him. We can only indicate our reverence for him and thank the divine providence which kept him to serve and inspire his fellow man. They wanted to make George Washington king. He refused. He said, we don't need a king. And that's when our whole system of government is set up. Now, remember, I told you they said he was a deist. 
He did not believe in God the way that you and I do. They weren't Christian, all this other stuff. Let me read you some of his quotes, okay? And you tell me what this sounds like to you. It says, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Sounds kind of Christian to me. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to pro political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable. And here's the last one. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. This is George Washington. I could have put... 30 of these things up here. These are just a few. This was a man of faith, a man of God. Not a flawless man, not a man without problems, but he was a man that knew who to thank in the times of what was going on. Because it was by the guidance of Almighty God, when they talk about the great Almighty, the great providence, all of this stuff, they're referring to God the Father like you and I think is that the reason that they were able to do this, the reason that they are here, is because of God's divine providence. And it goes all throughout history. But what happened to our nation? We started good. We, could, we don't have time to track all of this stuff all the way through. But something changed. Something has happened. He said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. Well, guess what? The world has tried to pull God in the Bible out. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now, this is God talking to Israel, but the principle behind it is this. Is that if you're going to pull me out of the public square, then you have no hope. I am the hand that feeds you. I am the hand that guides you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We don't fear God anymore in this nation. We've made a God after our own kind. I was talking about to somebody the other day. Have you noticed that in our culture today, this just struck me this week. Our culture today, you've got this hyper grace movement where God is love. God loves everybody, which is true, but not in the way they're saying. God loves everybody and therefore everybody's going to heaven. There's this universalism that you don't have to be a Christian. You can be an, uh, a Muslim. You can be a Hindu, whatever. It's the same God. We just call him different names, which is not true. All of this stuff that's going on is like, oh yeah, this is it and this is all of that. You know what's interesting is that this generation has brought up that God loves you. And he wants to be, uh, have a relationship with you. 50 years ago, you were taught to fear God because the judgment is coming. You've got two separate extremes. 50 years ago is that you didn't dare back talk your mother because lightning might strike you. Right? Or her backhand. Same thing. Same thing. They call this lightning, right? I mean, but, but I mean, you didn't do that because there was a reverence and a fear of God. And 50 years ago, it wasn't a matter, like you would be shocked if you found out your neighbor didn't go to church. Shocked. Shocked today. You're shocked if they do. Right? Like, oh, you go to church? Oh, don't tell anybody. You know, I mean, it's, it's completely 180, but you've got a generation growing up to fear God, and you've got a generation growing up that, oh, Jesus loves you just the way you are. No, he doesn't. He can't stand the way you are. That's why he came, so you can change and quit being an idiot. It takes years. I'm getting closer, okay? The bottom line, guys, is that we've got such a, a grasp. We've lost our fear of God and this, this knowledge and all of that. But it all starts in the public square. And it's because of a weak church that we are the way we are today. Now, I told you we're going to talk about my favorite saying, the separation of church and state. This comes out of the First Amendment. I'm going to read this to you, okay? Now, watch carefully. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Okay, I'm going to read it again. 
Listen carefully. You can look at it too. Okay? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of. That is all of the First Amendment. Here's a question, okay? Test time. Did you see the word separation, church or state, mentioned? No. No, not at all. You see, this amendment has two basic pieces to it. You've got the Establishment Clause, which is prohibiting the establishment of a national denomination, and you've got the Free Exercise Clause, which is prohibiting the interfering or limiting of public religious expressions. There are two things. There will be no national denomination. You will not be Anglican or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, because that's where they came from. The pilgrims were escaping the Anglican Church. They went up uh, to the... Holland, thank you. Yeah, they went up to Holland to escape there and then later came over because of religious persecution because they weren't Anglican. So you've got that and you cannot interfere with the limiting or the public expressions of religion. The thing that I want you to understand, we have freedom of religion, not freedom of worship. There's a big difference. Freedom of worship means you're allowed to worship God in your church however you want. Freedom of religion means that they cannot tell you who to worship or how to worship, and they cannot interfere with your public religious expression. That gets outside of the walls. You can go anywhere and do that. In other words, you have the right of conscience to do what you feel is correct. So where do they get this term? Where does this idea of religious uh, or the separation of church and state come from? Well, it actually comes from Thomas Jefferson. He is the one that they cite as the main source of all of this. Okay. Now, to understand who Thomas Jefferson was, he was a man who fought for freedom of religion big time. It was before the revolution in the state of Virginia. And during this time, he had to have, you had to have a license to call yourself a church, to set yourself up as a church. Now, he becomes president. He's the third president in 1801. And when it, back then, it was that when you won, they would send tons of letters would come congratulating to you. Nowadays, it's all Facebook messages and all of that. So he's getting hundreds and hundreds of letters congratulating him on, on, one of, uh, on his victory. But he got one letter from the Danbury Baptist who were concerned because they were concerned. Because Baptist was looked upon a little different back then. Okay? It was kind of a, I would say newer, but that's probably not the right term to use. But it, the, the old ones were your, your Lutherans and your Methodists. Your Baptists were kind of newer in that regard. And so there were a denomination that was set up that wasn't looked always favorably upon. And they were concerned that the government was going to come out and say that you have to be this. And they were worried about that. And so in 1801, he sends a letter back to them. In response, it was a four-page letter, and he said, listen, you do not need to worry about that because there is a wall of separation between church and state, thus preventing government interference. This is where that phrase comes from, is this letter written to the Danbury Baptist in 1801. Now, in this statement, there's a separation between church and state, preventing whom? Government interference with the church not church interference with the government. There's a big difference. Now, since this phrase has gone out, in 1947, since 1947, this phrase has been cited over 4,000 times in court cases, and probably more so than that, because these are some little bit older statistics that I've, I'm using here. 4,000 times it's been cited. Now, here's the thing. Thomas Jefferson is given credit with this term, the interpretation of the First Amendment. Here's what you need to know. At the time of the framing of the First Amendment, he was not in the country. He was in Europe. He was not a part of the process here. Joseph Priestley wrote a book trying to cite Jefferson as the framer of the First Amendment, and Jefferson wrote him a letter saying, you need to take my name out of this book because I had absolutely nothing to do with that. So, 
There were 90 founding fathers that, that argued about and debated this First Amendment. They, we have all of the debates in record at, at the records of Congress. They have all of them. And not one time from several months, well, it took several months to put this together, July to September. And not one time were the words separation, church, or state ever used. Not one time. But yet they're giving Jefferson credit. They're going back to that. And he had nothing to do with it because they take that phrase out of context, completely out of context. So here are some court cases to look at. Be that Understand, before 1947, what they looked. This is Supreme Court, 1811. It was a New York Supreme Court. There was a man that was writing a lot of vulgar content out there about the church, about God, all of that kind of stuff. Here's the Supreme Court case in New York. It says, whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government. An attack on Christianity is an attack on the foundation of this nation. Supreme Court of New York. You think they'd say that today? Mm-mm. Okay, here's another one, 1844, Girard College versus the U.S. This college was in Philadelphia. It was founded by a French immigrant, and what he wanted to do is to operate it without God and the Bible and separate morality from religion and follow what was called the French Enlightenment. Now, the French Enlightenment, which you may not know uh, uh, what that is, you have certainly seen it put in practice because it's put in practice even in the church today. You're separating any standard and whatever feels good goes sort of thing. Okay, so think about art. hundred years ago, what was beautiful art? You had like sceneries, you had pots and plants and all of that. What's art today? Someone's spitting on a canvas. That's art. What's happened? It's that the interpreter no longer has to go to the foundation or what the original intent was. That is the premise of the French Enlightenment. We do the same thing in church today. We sit down in a Bible study and we read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we turn and say, Laura, what does that mean to you? And she comes up with whatever witty thing that she would come up with. And then I look at, at, at Evan. Evan, what does that mean to you? And, and we go on and on. And the truth is, I don't care what it means to you. I care what it meant to him. Because he's the one that said it. That is the premise. It's called deconstructionism that has come out of the French Enlightenment. Boy, aren't you glad you came to church today? Okay. But this is what he wanted to do. Joseph Story's response to this. Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in its school, its general precepts expounded, its evidences explained, and its glorious principles of morality inculcated? Where can the purest principle of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? This was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court that the Bible must be taught in this school, even though they didn't want to. Must, because it is the foundation of everything that the United States was built on. I go on. 1854, House Judiciary Committee, in practice. In 1853, there was a group petition Congress to separate Christian principles from government. Does any of this stuff sound familiar? Like stuff we're seeing today. There's nothing new under the sun. We've been fighting this battle for years. Basically, what they want is they wanted chaplains removed from Congress and from the military. That this government should have nothing to do with any religious thing. Now, we still have chaplains today. They were paid. They're still paid. They were paid back then. They'd always open with prayer at the sessions. They would pray with the people individually. They continue to do it because they've been able to skirt around it, saying that this is a traditional thing, and therefore a prayer may be offered, and, and uh, uh, chaplains can't be here, but it's simply because it was tradition, and that is why. Now, they wanted Christian principles completely removed from the public square, from anything government, from the military. They desired government not to protect Christian principles from the public arena, but to completely remove it. 
So Congress listens to them. They hear their argument. They take it under advisement. And they took a year to investigate this out and say, okay, let's look at this. And let's look at this situation. Here's what they had to say. Had the people, the founding fathers during the revolution, a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and its amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not one sect. What's a sect? A denomination. In this age, there is no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. This is Congress, right? Can't say that today. It's not politically correct. Two years later, they reiterate this message again to make sure they're very clear. The great vital and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people and the pure doctrines and the divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Freedom of religion is freedom of Christianity. Not all religions go. That wasn't the principles that they were laying out there. You could come here as a Muslim or as a Hindu and have freedom to worship how you want. But that doesn't mean you're going to interfere with the Christianity of the government because the government was there to protect that. So you have the right here because Christianity in its principles is not by war expanding the message. It is by love expanding the message. Where most other religions expand by war. Now that doesn't mean that Christians haven't done stupid things through the years. They most certainly have but that is not the teachings of Christianity that's why God says do not take the Lord's name in vain that's not using it as a cuss word that if you're going to call yourself his child don't do it in vain you better represent because you are his ambassador okay here's another one 1878 Reynolds versus US this is a case brought using the phrase separation of church and state this 1878 it was used they did not allow at this time him to just bring this phrase in actually what they did is they brought an entire copy of that letter that Jefferson had wrote and so this is the Supreme Court here no purpose of action against religion can be imputed to any legislation state or national because this is a religious people this is a Christian nation Supreme Court's gone down a lot in this case, they ruled that Christianity was the religion of our people, and they cited 80 precedents to this case. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's how our legal system worked. They go back to see how the law had been interpreted in the back using precedents. This is how they interpreted. Why would we change that now? They saw it this way. It shouldn't change. So, here we go. 1947, Everson versus the Board of Education. The First Amendment has erected a wall of separation between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. Now, I just read you a handful of cases. I told you there were 80 precedents in 1892. There's been a lot more since then. And this is the first time that they made a motion, the Supreme Court made a motion without precedence. What does that mean? That they governed from the bench. They put their own personal spin on it and not the foundation of which this was built upon. And this is where it comes from. Now, you would think that somebody, Congress, people would just have an outcry and they would stand up and they would say, no, that's not the truth. In fact, you know, why do we believe what separation church is today? Because we've heard it so much. It's been beat into us so much that we assume that we know what it means. Well, Dr. William James, he's the father of modern psychology, says this, there is nothing so absurd but that if you repeat it often enough, people will believe it. Now, this guy's kind of wacko, but he got that one right. 
Okay, so that's when the separation of all church and state comes up. But in 1962, Engel versus Vital is the U.S. Supreme Court, banned Christian principles from education, banned prayer from school. Up until this point, the Bible was actually taught in school, and they would always open with prayer. Early on in your childhood, when you were learning your alphabet, you were taught it using Scripture, A is for Adam, and they have a sentence that goes along. You can go back and see these early textbooks from the early 1900s. They would use Scripture. Why? Because they've been being taught Scripture their entire life. Every week they're in church, they're being taught it at home as well. So it was something they could relate to. So they've taken this phrase out of context. Twelve months and two cases later, they completely banned Bible reading. In other words, you could not read the Bible. And here's what they said, 1963, Supreme Court. If portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. Have you read the New Testament? I mean, what's the harm? Love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, that's terrible. Please don't do that. Children, obey your parents. Oh, can't have that. I mean, it's completely nuts. They did all of this without precedent. 1892, U.S. Supreme Court. This is a Christian nation, citing 80 precedents. 1962, U.S. Supreme Court. They banned prayer at school, citing no precedents. It's complete change. Why? What happened? Because we did not elect God-fearing people that will uphold our Constitution and follow the fear of God. In 1980, Stone versus Graham, another Supreme Court, there was a fight over the Ten Commandments. Now, the court acknowledged that the Ten Commandments were simply passive artwork, okay? But here's what they said. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, to venerate and obey the commandments. This is not a permissible state objective. Yes, thou shalt not kill is something you do not want your children doing, certainly. Honor your mother and father, thou shalt not lie. I mean, this is crazy. So you've got that it's psychologically harmful, and you've got here that we don't want them reading this because this could be bad for them. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is crazy. At this point, the Supreme Court was no longer just concerned with the laws and the Constitution, which is really the only power that they are given. They interpret the laws. They have made themselves more powerful than they ought, and Congress really needs to step in and deal with this, but they won't. They have a constitutionally given role. They have exceeded that constitutionally given role. Now they've appointed themselves as a national child psychologist, as a national board of theology, as a supreme board of education. They have put themselves up and above everything else. Their job, judge the laws, judge the Constitution. That's it. James Wilson, who was helped write the Constitution, and he later taught it to students, says this, human law must rest its authority entirely on the law of that which is divine. Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sister friends and mutual assistance. His point is that if there is no God, then there is no foundation of morality. It's whatever you think is right. It is Mob rule, essentially. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, okay, there was a picture of Britney Spears, and she had her two-year-old daughter sitting on her seat driving her car down the road. And there was an outcry. Oh, what a horrible mother. How dare she do that? I can't believe you would risk your child's life. Now, when I was growing up, not only did I sit on my father's lap and drive the station wagon, but we never wore seatbelts. We'd crawl around in the back. Sometimes we'd stand on the top of the car while he was driving down the road because it was fun. I drove the car by myself at 10 years old, but it was perfectly acceptable. Everybody did it. What changed? The law changed. 
When the law uh, came into act, now suddenly you're a moral monster for doing this. But there has to be a foundation. Government does three things. They prohibit, they promote, and they prevent. Or permit, excuse me, not prevent. They promote things like your job. Like if you be a cop, they promote that. Be a teacher, they promote that. They, they prohibit the, uh, being a drug dealer. That's bad. But everything else, they permit. But when they begin to promote things that are ungodly, now the morality is beginning to change. They are legislating morality. And it has no foundation of which it can be founded upon. Our foundation is on God. This country's foundation was on God. Now, let's talk about ACLU. They're my favorite group. I'm sure they're your favorite group. Now, here's a story for you. A gal named Megan Chapman, she was a senior in high school. She's get, they're getting ready for, they're, they're a couple months out of graduation. You may have heard about this on the news. She was elected to lead the Lord's Prayer at graduation. And so ACLU catches wind of that and threatens to sue them. They file a motion in court to stop this because this cannot happen. So it went to court. Now, the, father, the federal court said you cannot lead in a prayer. And so she was upset about it, and the ACLJ caught wind of it, which is Jay Sekulow. Good guy. We like Jay Sekulow. Okay? They catch wind of it. They get on the phone with her. They say, listen, you may not be able to pray, but you can certainly tell about the good people in your life and the good things that have happened to you in your life, anything that maybe uh, that, that would promote some wellness and goodness. Wherever that source comes from, you can talk about that. So, you know, she's a little bit distraught, but it's like, okay, so she finds some inspirational poem, and she's, I'm just going to read this, and, and it had Christian undertones without being directly Christian. And so she's beginning to walk up on stage, and the entire graduating class stands up and begins to recite the Lord's Prayer. Then the entire crowd stands up and does it with her. As she's walking up on stage, the whole place goes nuts. They're applauding, they're screaming. She got up there and threw the poem away and gave her testimony telling how good God is. All of this goes back to that 1962 ruling. All of it. But, the, you know, the ACLU. I had a run-in with the ACLU a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know you're doing something good when the ACLU is threatening you. I, it was a bit of a proud moment for me, but here's what was going on. I was, uh, we were setting up a big event in the high school, and we, we, we had bands coming in, and we had a Columbine survivor. She was coming to speak, and so we had we'd put out thousands of dollars for this thing, and we got this event going on, and the marketing, what we were going to do to promote it is they were going to have a school assembly during the day and then the event that night. Now, that night is where the gospel was going to be preached. This was going to be just kind of fun. You're going to get the principal dancing and you know, the goofy stuff, get the kids, get the word out. That's all we were doing for marketing. It was completely grassroots, guerrilla type thing. It was, by, it was strategic plan in this. So I used to own a business, and uh, I'd bought a piece of equipment in Colorado Springs. So a friend of mine and I, it was, this was going to be on a Friday, I believe. Yes, it was going to be on a Friday. It was Wednesday. We get done working on, on Wednesday, finish up 9 o'clock that night. We jump in a truck. We drive all the way out to Colorado Springs. We get there at 6.30 in the morning. We pick up the equipment, and we start heading back. So I'm a little tired. On my way back, I get a call from the superintendent. He said, hey, we got this letter from the ACLU. Now, how they found out about this, I'll never know. They said, we got this letter from the ACLU. They're threatening to sue us. Um, so we're going to cancel the event. I said, you can't cancel the event. He says, well, you know, the board's concerned and all of that. I said, give me some time to work on it. So I'm trying to get a hold of Seculo or somebody there, and it's just too short notice. I can't get a hold of anybody. Um, but I call him up again, and I said, listen, you know, there's got to be something we can do. I mean, we've already put out all the funds for this. He said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll cancel the school assembly. 
but you can have the event that night, which is great. That's, you know, it's a nice compromise. The problem with that compromise is that how we were getting the word out about the event that night was the school assembly. I said, well, can I do this? Can I come to the school that day and hand out tickets? He's like, I don't see any problem with that. Well, now I've told you guys I can be persistent, kind of like a pit bull on a pork chop, okay? I, uh, you know, so I went into the school that day, and I had a dozen teachers that were handing out tickets, helping us out, getting the word out. We had 250 students show up to that thing on a single day's notice. It was incredible. And watching their, their just heart for God just change and things like that. But, you know, I'm sitting there thinking on my way back because I was going to pass through Lincoln, which is where the ACLU office was. I'm like, you know, I should just stop in and really have a heart-to-heart with these people and, and lay hands on them suddenly. I, de- I decided not to because I didn't have the bail money, but that's, that's besides the point. You guys, all of this goes back to this 1962 ruling. And when they did this, they changed the definition of what the word church and religion meant. Because prior to 1962, the definition of church was belief in some supreme being that set forth commands that he expected his followers to obey. I think we could all agree with that. But after 1962, here's what it's changed to. Whatever a person believes so strongly that it affects the way they behave. Okay? So it changed the word church from a religious institution to a religious activity. Remember, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. They're all for religious activity. You do whatever you want in your church and stuff like that. But out in the public square, you don't have that right. That is incorrect. Now, when they did this, it has some crazy consequences that they did not think of. Because by their definition, that whatever you believe so strongly uh, that that is religious, that is church, is that atheism is now a religion. And Satanism is now a religion. Secular humanism is now a religion. Universalist, Unitarianism is now a religion. And the thing is, is that we understand, not all religions then, under this definition, are treated the same. Christianity is treated completely different than everyone. Because think about this. In the school, every year in October, when you walk into a public school, what do you see on the, on the walls? You see witches and, and mummies and stuff, and they're always cute, you know, cartoony type stuff. But what's happening is they're promoting a certain religion at that point. What is that religion? Satanism, Wiccan, the occult, all of that kind of stuff. Now, none of us are going to throw a fit about that because we know that's not what they're intending to do by any means. It's just Halloween is what they, what they do. But that is actually what they're doing. They're promoting one church, one religion over another. Okay? Well, think about it this. The fact that they banned prayer and Bible reading from school, you can't do all of this kind of stuff. Now they're promoting the religion of atheism. Right? These are the consequences of happening. You read about things today, there, there's a section that the, these junior high kids and stuff are being taught about Islam now. Where sometimes they'll even take them to a mosque and they'll have them pray to Allah. And they'll do it in their classroom. They'll get them down on, the, on their knees. I think they go to the east or to the west. They pray to the east, right? Pray to the east. I mean, they'll do all of that kind of stuff. Teaching it. They'll teach them the five pillars of Islam. Oh, absolutely. Are they laying out the foundation of Christianity in schools today? No. No. No, in fact, teachers, if you saw God's Not Dead too, that's a, a perfect court case, and I, I'll tell you about another one, but, but where they, a student asked something about Jesus, the teacher responded to that specific question and lost her job. At a conference I was at, you guys know I go to do these conferences, I met a teacher last year who basically had done the same thing and decided to resign. Now, she, they didn't have to. But she decided to resign because she was getting pressure from the board because one student was offended that she had said something religious. Okay? It's happening all over the place. 
Now, when we talk about where we are and where we've been, we're at two different conundrums. There's something that can be done. We're not out. And I want to show you this by talking about Abraham Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln, um, we know about him. He's the one that led to the Civil War, right? He is the one that brought the battle, separating the North and the South, getting rid of slavery and all of that kind of stuff. Definitely a good thing. Between April of 1862 and May of 1863, there were 11 ba major battles that took place. The Union Army won two of them. The Confederate Army won nine. Not doing so hot. I mean, you'd have thought it was like the Missouri football team or something. I don't know. Two for nine. Well, they would have won two. Missouri Tigers fans are happy with that. Okay. I had to say it. Sorry. Lord, I apologize. Okay. May 1863 to April 1865. Two-year span. The Union Army wins nine major battles. The Confederate Army won two. What happened? What changed? Did they get better at fighting all of a sudden? No. In between those two things... Lincoln was distraught, and you can read this in his, his archives and what he wrote. He didn't know what to do, and he said, you know what? We've got to back up. I know God has told us to, to win this because we have got to end this atrocity that's going on in our nation. So he calls for a national day of humiliation and fasting. And that the whole nation should be praying and coming together in prayer. So they began to do that and started seeking God, and that is when the war began to shift. At that moment. Why? He's a man who feared God. He called for not just a day, but weeks of fasting, prayer, and humiliation. Second Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. You quoted part of that this morning. Now this is obviously written to the nation of Israel, but the principles again are the same. If we will turn back, then God again can bless this nation. Now, I don't care what you think about Donald Trump. I, it doesn't make any difference to me because he's done some good things. He's done some stupid things. And I pray that Twitter just shuts down so he doesn't have it anymore. But whatever. <laughs> but the bottom line is this, is that there were several prophecies that were given prior to this man ever winning office. And some of them, even before I, I talked about one, I should have showed it today, 2007, that he would be the president. 2007, Obama wasn't the president yet. Trump wasn't on the radar. That speaks volumes to me about that one. But one of the things that they said is that it will bring correction to this political correctness nonsense that's going on and bring Christianity and God back to the forefront of people's minds. I don't know whether that's legit or not, but I sure pray it's true. I pray it's true. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, folks, if the church had been just simply doing these things way back when, we wouldn't be having the conversations that we are having right now. But it's shifted so far that it's going to take a strong, powerful church that's not afraid to fast, not afraid to prayer, not afraid to put themselves down and put God up first and live their lives in the public square in order to let their light shine before men. John Jay was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. says, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Why would we want that? When the rulers fear God, the people cheer, right? You see all of these times throughout scriptures where some ungodly man is put into leadership and the people hate it. Their life is horrible. But we've got, you know how many Christians don't go out and vote? Are you kidding me? Here it is, we wonder, we sit around and complain, 
Those are the same Christians that can't figure out why the churches aren't full every Sunday. Well, maybe because we're not doing the work of the Lord. Going to church was never a command. Being the church, that's the command. James Garfield, he was a reverend, he was the 20th president, says the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nations do not aid in controlling the political forces. And here we are, guys. We are seeing everything that these guys laid out that they said was going to happen is happening because we did exactly what they said. Moses, when the people were getting ready to go into the promised land, right? God had provided for them all the way throughout. Everything that they needed was met. It may not always been what they wanted, but every need was met. And he's not going to get to enter. He's at the end of his life. And he tells them, like, listen, when you get there, the houses are built. The vineyards are planted. The wells are dug. Do not forget who brought you to where you are today. What he's saying is that when things are good, don't forget about what brought you here. And that's where we are today. We have a nation that's been built up through the years by individuals who have given their lives to protect the religious freedoms that we have in this country. And now we have a generation that's just looking for a handout and takes everything for granted. We're doing today what Moses warned his people about however many thousands of years ago. Why? Because human nature is the same. What have you done for me lately? Charles Finney, who's a reverend, who's part of the Second Great Awakening, He says, the time has come that Christians must vote for honest men and take consistent ground in politics or the Lord will curse them. Christians have been exceedingly guilty in this matter, but the time has come when they must act differently. God will bless or curse this nation according to the course his Christians take. We have a duty to raise up leaders to train our children in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart. That way they can become the future leaders. It is time for the church to rise up and Christianity to take its rightful place. So I want to read you this. I'm almost done. It's called, Who Will I Vote For? It says, I will vote for the most pro-life candidate because God hates the shedding of innocent blood, Proverbs 6, 17. I will vote for the most pro-debt reduction candidate because the borrower is a servant to the lender, Proverbs 22, 7. I will vote for the most pro-work candidate because God says, if a man does not work, let him not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. I will vote for the most pro-marriage candidate because God is for marriage as defined in Genesis 2, 24. I will vote for the most pro-Israel candidate because God blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who don't, Genesis 12, 3. I will vote for the candidate who most closely believes government's purpose is to reward the good and punish the evil, Romans 13. I will vote based on God's word, 2 Timothy 3, 16, knowing that whoever gets elected, God is the one who puts all men in authority according to Daniel 2, 21. You see, we don't have an election coming up just yet, but there'll be one around the corner. But today, when we celebrate our Independence Day, the question is, is what are we independent from? It's not simply separating from the British and, and, and Europe and all that other stuff. I mean, because if we were, we'd be spelling our words different and have funny accents. Thank God we don't. But there was a separation that took place from the ideals that Europe brought. That we are a Christian nation founded upon Christian peop- uh, principles that should be led by Christian people. This idea of religious reformation and freedom of religion means that anything goes is absolute nonsense. We need to make sure that we are standing up for the principles 
that this country was founded on. But when God says that my people perish for a lack of knowledge, you know what? It's because most people do not know what this country is founded upon. We assume that we know. You tell us anything long enough, people will believe it, no matter how absurd it is. And we have bought into the lie that when you go to church, you can worship any way you want. But when you step outside of those doors, then you better get in line with what the government says. Government has no authority except from God. And God laid out his principles in the way we should live in his word. And when the government is not acting right, then we the people must stand up and make our voices heard and demand that they get in line with the word of God. Amen. Amen. It is time for the church to take its place to be the authority, to be the moral compass. We stop being the thermostat, we become the thermometer. We have simply gauging where things are. We used to be what controlled the temperature. And we need to get back to that. Because we have lost our way. Because we have a weak church. We have churches that will spend more time arguing about doctrine and less time taking care of the people and loving on the people and showing the love of Christ because we're too concerned with being right than being useful. Busyness and fruitfulness are not the same thing. It is time for us as the church to rise up and take our rightful place and stand on the authority that God has given us. And we need to vote people in place that do that. And when they don't, we need to do our part to vote them 